Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Co-op this morning. Uh, great Thursday morning. We're getting some rain here in Washington, D.C. That's much needed to grow the plants and uh, give us our food. And today uh, we have Mr. Clark Arrington, who will talk to us and give us information that will be food for the soul. Uh, good morning, Clark. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. This is, this is new technology for me, but I'm hanging in there. I'm an old guy. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, we may have similar may years, have but I don't consider myself old yet. yet. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm wanting to talk to you about your life. And I have it that you are an attorney who has worked a lot in the cooperative field. And you're getting in, inducted into the Co-op Hall of Fame here on October the 7th. Can you tell us first, how did you become an attorney? Where did you grow up? And how did you get into the co-op world? That's three questions all at once. Sure. So, um, you know, Clark Arrington, and let me just say, I'm, you know, very pleased to be here. And I'm very pleased to um, have met you um, through Zoom. I've heard a lot about you. Um, you're prominent uh you know, major player in the co-op world, so it's uh, a real pleasure to be here with you, and I hope we have uh, many uh, many more opportunities to, to hang out and share information. I'm from Philadelphia, basically grew up in the suburbs, and then I went to a, um, a private school in, in, in North Carolina, a black prep school, Palmer Memorial Institute um, in Sedalia, North Carolina. I was like one of the few, if not only, uh, Black. It was one of the black prep schools back in the day. It still has a reputation from a very, very distinguished alumni. And, you know, a lot of folk, uh, you know, went to the HBCUs, uh, you know, the Morehouses, the Spellmans, the Hamptons, the Tuskegee's, etc. Mm-hmm. So I grew up, I went to high school there. And um, just, uh, I don't want to be too long on this, but the bottom line is I, I learned about Marcus Garvey. When I was in high school, and I was okay. probably more fascinated by the, the pictures of his uh, ships and the black folk who were shareholders and owners and the Black Star Line, et cetera. And so I, I, I began in high school wondering about um, power and, 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 and capital accumulation. You know, back in the day, you know, there were the folks that said you needed the money to get the politics and folks that said you need the politics to get to the money. I was on the side of you need the money to get to the politics. And so I, from there, I, you know, I just moved in the direction of becoming a lawyer, focusing on capital formation. I could go on forever. Okay. I'm, I'm really curious of, of Marcus Garvey and the pictures of the ships and black folk. And 
You need money to get the political clout, and you needed political clout, the politics, in order to get money. That was the the the, the dance, the, the the swing, if you will, up and down. Of you need capital, and then with capital you can get the politics, and if you have the politics, then you can get capital. That's what you said to me. Yeah, I mean that was the debate I think in the '60s, the late '60s, '70s, in the black community. Some folks saying, you know, we need to get political power and then we can get economic power. I mean, some folks said, no, 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 we need to get the economic power and then we can get the political power. Probably pretty much along the lines of the debate between Du Bois and, and Booker T. With Booker T saying, let's become stable, let's become, um, you know, employed and skilled and, and, and sustainable. And, and Du Bois saying, no, let's, let's take, um, let's become intellectuals, let's, Let's let's argue our case. Let's get laws passed. Let's uh, enter the political arena. So that is, so I, and I, I I was uh, I was on the side of Booker T. I thought, no, let's make the money, and then when we make the money, we can influence politics. And I think you know, Leon you know, Sullivan out of Philly. I think he clearly was on the the economic side, um, the folk at core, you know, versus you know, say SNCC or you know. Martin Luther King or Urban League, uh, you know, which are much more sort of let's play the political game and get economic power. And I think that's still pretty much the case. Well, you know, I've never heard it from this history standpoint, but I've been trying to reach out to Reverend Barber because I have it that he's extremely good and articulate at describing the problems of African poor people, African-Americans, white brown it doesn't but the the poly, the problem with poor people in America in the poor people's campaign and his solutions are political and that, and I and I yeah, and I've exactly. been trying to reach him to say let's have two strategies here a political strategy and an economic strategy i have it you need both it's not one or the other that's what i've come to to to, to think and realize and come on so i'm a Booker T. Washington guy and a, a Du Bois guy. <laughs> okay, you, you need. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. And and I think that's a much more accurate and proper way of describing the dilemma. And I guess what I'm saying is, I chose to work in the economic arena, as, and knowing that other people were working in the political arena. But you definitely need both. No question about it. And I definitely encourage you to contact Reverend Barber and really have that conversation with him. Because if he's amassing people together, that means there's a potential for capital formation. I mean, that was the Nation of Islam. That was uh, Marcus Garvey. That was Reverend Leon Sullivan. And there are other groups today that are attempting to do that. And uh, I spend some time sort of, you know, functioning in that area of capital formation, particularly community capital formation, and forming financial cooperatives. Community Capital formation, that means the community owns the capital. And then what kind of co-op? Oh, financial co-ops. Yeah. Okay. That's a, the, the credit union model. Okay. But, you know, I think there's a, you know, I, I'm, one of, I'm one of these guys that, um, you know, I love the labels, but um, I don't really, um, I'm not, a, I don't hear, adhere to them. So I, I may call something a cooperative or. Uh, you know, whatever, but when you lift up the hood, you'll see that it's a little more complicated. And that's only because I'm a lawyer, and I know how to make things complicated. 
Uh, I was under the impression that lawyers make things complicated so they could charge more money, that they rid of it with economic formation, but for them. Okay, not for the community. Uh, that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> that's another conversation. We do that all uh, but, you know, you right. have a 50-page lease, you know, so you can charge $1,000. You know, if it was just a two-page lease, you know, you think you could charge $1,000 for a two-page lease? Nah. Okay, that's a, that's a hundred dollars. Okay, um, I really like this history of Booker T. Washington, Du Bois, Marcus Garvey. Uh, you mentioned MLK, the Urban League, uh, Leon Sullivan, and it, and, and Dr. Jessica Gordon Emhart has written a book called Collective Courage, and she talks about a lot of these folks and how much co-opt was in the midst of it all uh, back in the day and bringing it all up to today. Uh, how did you get into co-op? What what got you into this world? That's interesting. Well, you know, I, I, I um, basically the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, and how I got to the Federation of Southern Cooperatives is somewhat of a long story. But the bottom line is, I was a black capitalist. Um, I worked for the SEC. In fact, I'd set up a MESBIC when I was in law school, a minority enterprise small business investment company. Um, that's a whole another conversation. I operated it for a minute. Um, then I went on to the Securities Exchange Commission. It's one of the first black attorneys at the SEC. Worked in this area called investment management. They basically manage mutual funds because that's what I wanted to understand. How could a lot of people with a little bit of money pull it and have a lot of money? And I ended up at a place called the Center for uh, National Policy Review at Catholic University Law School. We were basically the lawyers for the civil rights movement. And my area was economic development. And through my, 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 my interest area, I got involved with the Federation of Southern Cooperatives that were also debating and, and, and struggling with this uh, project called the Tennessee Dom Bigby Waterway, which was a billion-dollar Corps of Engineer project that was going to connect the Tennessee River, which flew, flowed south with the Tom Bigby River. No, the other way around but it was one river flowed north and one river flowed south. They could connect them through a dam, a canal, et cetera, and it would take about 500 miles off the Mississippi River route because it was much more of a direct route as opposed to the Mississippi, which meandered. And this went right through Federation land, right through the black, uh, uh, black belt of uh, Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee. And in part, it was being justified by Congress that it would help eliminate poverty. They would have created all kinds of jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, because of the, 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 the traffic on the waterway and the ports, et cetera, et cetera. Federation didn't believe it. Long story short, I helped them negotiate an affirmative action plan that was a multi-state affirmative action plan, which was the first, at the time, multi-state affirmative action plan because it was based on Mississippi, Alabama, and Tennessee. And I learned about the Federation and, and, and cooperatives. It's like, oh, okay, um, cooperatives. Well, okay, these things, okay. So, you know, a little bit kind of different than the black capitalist thing. But I realized mm-hmm. really quickly that um, I really didn't like capitalism. In fact, I, you know, I, I really uh, deployed. I mean, it was, you know, the system that, you know, allowed us to become enslaved. 
you know, this whole notion of uh, maximization of profits. Yeah. Sir, we we, we got to take our first break. I, did, I slept it because I'm so interested in what you're talking about. Listen, we're going to take our first break. We're going to come back and talk about the Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, and this multi-state affirmative action plan and creating capital. That's what it's, we're talking about right now, creating capital. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Co-op, and our guest is Clark Harrington, who is general counsel of the working world, and he is a senior fellow at Seed Commons. And we'll get to talk about those later. But right now, we were talking before break about the Tennessee Valley uh, River, which was a billion-dollar project. And they put together, he was working with Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, and the Federation of Southern Co-ops. As you were talking, Clark, I did not learn about co-ops in my formal education. Some people have been on this show in the last eight years did. But I did not learn about it, and it sounds like you did not learn about it. You went to prep school and high school and then college and then law school. I didn't hear you say anything about learning about it until you first worked at the Security Ex- Exchange because you were a black capitalist and you figured out that you were taking the route of Booker T. Washington of getting economics first. And you, and working through this, you learned about the Tennessee Valley, which got you to the Federation of Southern Co-ops, which got you to co-op. Is that right? Is that how you learned about co-ops? Yeah, I learned about co-ops from the Federation of Southern Co-operatives. And that was um, well after I um, graduated from law school. So uh, I've been through uh, high school, college, uh, law school, um, worked at the SEC, and uh, was working at the Center for National Policy Review, which was at Catholic University Law School. And it wasn't until I went to Epsa, Alabama, to talk about the economic opportunities of this waterway that I learned about co-ops. Uh, and it was, it was totally uh, fascinating. And it, 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 it significantly um, changed my life because I ended up moving. I ended up taking a job, leaving the Center for National Policy Review at and, and, and Catholic University and working for the Federation. And it was just the contrast. You live in D.C. I mean, back in the day, I mean, you get to August and, you know, you don't see the sun for, you know, whatever, weeks, months. You know, you don't see uh, birds. Uh, you don't see stars at night. And I'd go to Alabama and, you know, it was like bright sun, heat. You know, there were birds. I saw robins and cardinals and all kinds of birds. And, uh and then, you know, at night I could saw the Milky Way, and I remember the Milky Way from a child. And I said, there's something wrong with D.C. Um, <laughs> and then also, you know, the folk I, I did work for, you know, and I'm not going to mention any names, but, you know, they drove Mercedes Benzes and, you know, they ate at uh, hotels and, you know, they were civil rights folk, but um, they lived a really good life. And then I'd go to Alabama and I'd meet these people, you know, John Zippert and Charles Prejean, and, and that's a whole, wow, I wish I could we had more time. I'd, I'd tell you that story. But, um, you know, I meet these really genuine people that were really part of the civil rights movement, that, you know, Rose Sanders, you know. I mean, the people who, who actually, you know, were part of the struggle, but they didn't leave the South. They didn't, you know, to go to D.C. to become big shots. Anyway, 
So that that really just impressed me, and I just I love the genuineness of those folk, and I ended up moving to to Epps, Alabama, to work with the Federation and to set up a, a, a cooperative. My first assignment uh, was to raise money in order to set up a cooperative uh, in, 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 in expectation of taking advantage of all these business opportunities that were going to result from the waterway. They didn't result. And um, we were successful in raising, although we almost got put in jail. Um, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hold, hold, before you go to the jail part. What was the co-op that you were going to to, to start? We were raising money for um, a pallet manufacturing company. So we made pallets, wooden pallets. So this would have been a worker co-op. The workers owned it. Yeah, it was going to be a work. It was a worker-owned co-op, and we really didn't. You know, we didn't get it off the ground. We, myself and John Zipper, did. You know, we didn't know jack about starting businesses. We were serious. <laughs> We were activists, but not business people per se. And I was a lawyer, certainly not a business person. And John okay. was a community. But um, yeah, but we, you know, we raised the money, and that's a, and what we did was we collected money in a nonprofit corporation, with the understanding that if we used it for a for-profit venture, that people would be so notified, they'd have an opportunity to get their money back 100% at any time. Leave it in the nonprofit corporation or invest it in the for profit cooperative that we were setting up. And most people, if not all people, decided to do that. But on the way to the for profit cooperative, the Alabama Securities Commission, Mr. Sessions, who at that point was an attorney, they came after us. We were served with cease and desist order. You know, we were threatened basically with uh, criminal charges, 10B5, which is criminal. But we, I mean, I, we, got, we successfully fought it, and we continued with our effort because we were using a nonprofit corporation. We had not, you know, we were not selling securities. We were selling memberships in a nonprofit corporation that were 100% refundable. But the pallet business was just a, you know, I mean, you really needed somebody that knew the machinery, you know, how to cut down trees and, you know, the machines in the mail machines. It was very mechanically uh, oriented, and we did not have people that knew that machinery. And so even after purchasing the machines, you know, if there was a problem, we had to rely on somebody else to come fix it. And a key ingredient to that particular industry is that needs to be in-house. You need to have whoever is running your pallet, they need to be able to fix the equipment, and we didn't have that. So here's, here's what I had from my business side of it is that you had figured out the money side of it. You had come up with an idea for a business that they, there was demand for pallets. You had people around that needed work. So you had laborers, but you did not have anybody that really knew the product of how to manufacture pallets. And so therefore it did not work. That's, yeah, I'd say so that's, that's a good summary. Excellent okay. summary. And in the meantime, you met John Zippert. And John Zipper lived in Epps, uh, Charles Prejean. I assume Ralph Page was not there yet. He was so Charles Prejean was in charge. Ralph Page was in charge after him. Yeah, and Ralph at that time was in Atlanta, and Charles was in Epps, Alabama. And I should say, and also Carol Zipper. Carol and John yeah. actually lived in Utah, Alabama, which was one county over Greene County, uh, and Epps, which was there. 
uh, research training facility was in Sumter County, 1,600 acres, you know, in, in Epps, Alabama. At least that was the nearest, yeah, Gainesville. I mean, this, this is total bush, right? I mean, <laughs> you wouldn't believe oh, I know. I know. I've been to Epps several times. I got it's total. When you talk about seeing the stars, well, there's nothing there but trees and stars. I mean, that's what you see. Okay. Yeah, I got it. And I grew up in Bluefield, West Virginia. We could see the stars because we didn't have all the lights. And I was born in New York. And you go to New York to visit my cousins, you couldn't see any stars. Yeah, I know the difference. I know exactly what you're talking about. But I got to also tell you, John Zipper is from New York. And I never would have believed that. I laughed when I found that out. He He came down to Louisiana with the Freedom Riders. Right. And I thought he was... Go ahead. I said he was the student body president at City College in New York. And, uh, yeah, he came down with the Freedom Riders. He met Carol in Lafayette, Louisiana. They decided to get married. They were part of the, um, you know, that that, uh, case. I'm trying to think of the the name of the case, but um, something Virginia, blah, blah, blah. But um, that, that uh, you know, permitted, affirmed that you could, interracial marriages could take place. That case came up through, I was loving the Virginia. So it was loving, and then it was Zippert v. Alabama, um, or maybe it was Zippert v. Louisiana. But it was all combined uh, into one case, went to, before the Supreme Court, and they said, yes, a black person can marry a white person. <laughs> and that's how John and Carol got married. So what, what's interesting is John Zippert is the white part of that. Carl's the black part of it. John, for me, when you talk to John and see John and watch him walk and listen to him, he's more black than anybody I know, okay? That's why I was shocked when, when, when I heard that from him. And just great, genuine people. Yes, I totally get it. Yeah, he's black. I don't even think about John as anything other than black. But then, you know, it's like, you know, at a certain level, and, and, and I'm sure you, you, you know this, you know, color doesn't really make a difference. You know, it's what yeah. are the values? You know, what are you about? Um, you know, and, uh, you know, and that's the world we live in. It's a world of values. It's not a world of color. And we're dealing with Absolutely. it. But in terms of, uh, you know, how we do our work, I mean, we do our work with people who share our values. Okay, so we've got to how you got to co-ops and we're going to take our second break here in a minute and your your love for Epps, Alabama and comparing it to New York and working at, at yeah. the um, Catholic U and all of that. So what I want to talk about next when we come back from break was where did you go after the Federation and how did you end up internationally and your experiences there? Sure. Okay, and just like I asked you about the pallet manufacturing cooperative, uh, I really wanted this person, this conversation, the different co-ops that you had worked with, whether they were financial co-ops like uh, credit unions or worker co-ops. But we'll, we'll talk about that when we come back after break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative, and we have Mr. Clark Arrington on with us today. This program, um, Clark, we've been on for eight years. Eight years this October 
And October is a great month in that that's the, my birth month. That's the month that we celebrate co-ops. Uh, that's the month that the NCBA, National Cooperative Business Association, will have their Capital Impact Conference that first week of October. So October is just a great, great month. And National Co-op Bank has been sponsoring us both financially and giving us ideas of what we can talk about and people we can talk to. And NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for Americans' cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. And Chuck Snyder and the people down there uh, have just been wonderful in providing innovative financial services and by helping us with this, this program. So what we promised people was that uh, we would take from the Federation to talk about where did you go from there and how did you end up internationally? Brandon, those are such long, long stories, and I I need to learn how to be more concise. But the bottom line is um, I met this guy named Wilbur Colon, who is um, working on land retention issues. He's just out of law school from Mississippi. Um, he was at the Federation, and so we met. We were two young black lawyers, and so we, we would mostly spend uh, time together on the weekends because we had different jobs during the week, but we'd see each other. And we became very good friends, and the bottom line is I ended up going to Columbus, Mississippi, and starting a law firm uh, with Wilbur. And we became like the first black, white, female, male, totally integrated law firm in the state of Mississippi. And it was a really interesting experience. We took a case to the Supreme Court, which is still uh, a president-setting case um, regarding uh, gender discrimination. Uh, we sued the University of Mississippi for women. We, um, we represented literally uh, everybody who's being exploited or, or had claims um, that were unjust, based on unju- injustice. And, and in fact, there's an article uh, the New York Times Magazine, their Sunday Magazine, they did an article about our law firm. Basically, the like, what are what, what are civil rights lawyers doing now after the civil rights movement? And they they profiled us. So it was interesting. But from there, my man, he ends up uh, being on Reagan's transition team, which is a whole other story, and um, and it really radically changed the the focus of our law firm. And so. Um, you know, I ended up, uh, some more stories, but I ended up in, in Boston at the Industrial Cooperative Association, which was at that time one of the few, if not only, consulting firms focused on worker cooperatives, focused on worker ownership, but sub-team models, so you could say they were cooperative corporations. And uh, I became their attorney. I initially worked with um, uh, Peter Pittagoff who went on to the University of Buffalo to teach uh, community economic development and cooperative law. And, um, you know, and so the ICA bylaws, even to this day, for worker cooperatives um, are sort of like, you know, they're the Bible. They're the, uh, the model document for creating a, a worker-owned company, which are based on cooperative principles and which are um, enshrined in, in the bylaws that reflect uh, taxation to subchapter T. And um, so I helped, you know, write the bylaws, or at least amend the bylaws, adjust them with David Elliman, Chris Mackin, uh, Steve Dawson, uh, Janet Saglio, et cetera. 
really cool group of folk. And then with the work that I ended up doing with Equal Exchange, we created a sort of a model bylaws with four investors. So it has this class B preferred share attached to the regular co-op structure, which allowed for non-co-op members to become investors in a co-op. And at that time, that was kind of, it hadn't been done before, you know, because the co-op folk were in their world and the worker ownership people were in, in another world, and that was mostly ESOPs. But here we were sort of doing this sort of more Mondragon-ish sort of approach, and so we were able to, you know, be more flexible and be more creative and step out of the box, so we created a Class B share for a worker-owned cooperative which um, is now very, you know, it's still very popular. In fact, it's been used by a lot of other sectors um, because it allows for investor participation without investor control and uh, without uh, uh, overly, over, overly participation, overly participating. So, um, yeah, so from ICA to Equal Exchange, which was just, uh, I could talk about Equal Exchange for the rest of the day, um, as well as Seed Commons, um, but um, this is really interesting stuff that I see. At one point, I think I represented all of the worker-owned cooperative orchestras. Um, I represented all of the worker-owned construction companies. <laughs> okay. And, you know, I mean, I, you know, but I, I, I never met, I never heard of any other than the ones that I work with. Same thing with the symphony orchestras. I represented. Uh, one in Boston, I represented uh, Denver, I represented one in uh, um, Chicago, you know, it was like, yeah. So that, because that became a model. They were having, the orchestras were having difficulty. So a lot of businesses during that period, this would have been 80s, looked toward worker ownership as a solution to, um, you know, to the disinvestment in the factories, particularly in the Northeast, the steel, metal fabrication folk and the garment manufacturing folk. Uh, and it's sort of come to an employee buyout as the last alternative to closing the plant. But anyway, so, you know, I went to Equal Exchange. And on Equal Exchange, when my daughter graduated from Brown in 2000, and one, I moved to Africa. To hold, on, hold on, hold on. Before, hold before you go, I need to – you said so much there. I need to break it down a little bit for folks uh, and for me. Uh, um, so you left Epps and – I did your law firm in Mississippi, um, and then from there you went to Boston. I got, I, I just got a cooperative association, and then you, I didn't get the name of it, and you worked for a lot of different companies, you, you, symphony orchestras that were co-ops, uh, construction companies that co-op representatives, but then Equal Exchange. Now, we have had Equal Exchange on the show oh, maybe five, six different times. And I did. They had talked about that uh, preferred stock B class, but nowhere. This was like seven years ago. They were on, and they talked about it. But I did not get your working there. I didn't get that one until I started hearing about you uh, creating this preferred uh, this stock option, which still means that the workers had control. Okay, and so I just want to just quickly tell people that there are four types of co-ops. It depends on who owns and controls the business. And a worker co-op, the employees own and control it. So you have to have that they own and control it. So if you get in capital, you, 
Clark Arrington found a way to get capital in and still get the workers that where they had control. And the second type is the consumer co-op, where the consumer, the people that use their products and service, owns the business, housing co-ops, credit union, food co-op, REI, and so forth. And then sometimes a group of people or a group of companies come together and they create a purchasing co-op so they can buy in volume and, and probably get a better quality product at a lower price. Ace Hardware is an example of that. Uh, farmers use it. Artists are using it. Um, so uh, the different people are using purchasing co-ops. And a fourth type is marketing co-op or a producer co-op. It's what it's called where a group of people or a group of companies pool together and they they can send their products to more markets and they have a company that's marketing their product and for adding value. Cabot Creamery, Lando Lake, Ocean Spray. There's a group, um, Clark, in Pittsburgh called Ujama, that's black women artists, and they formed a co-op and they have a storefront uh, and they make jewelry and paintings and clothes, and together they can afford to have this storefront to sell their, their goods, but individually they could not. So those are the four types, and you're working with different ones of the symphony orchestras, construction companies, pallet-making companies, and, and equal exchange to get them capital using your legal background and creating their bylaws and getting them money. Did that summarize it pretty good, man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and let me just say, I mean, the company I worked for in Boston really was Cambridge, was the Industrial Cooperative Association. And it's uh, there's two ICAs, there's the International Cooperative Association, and then there's the USA Industrial Cooperative Association. And it was based on basically some, you know, economic development activists wanting to create a mandragon. That's why it's industrial cooperative. So their focus was on worker ownership. And that's why even to this day, I mean, if you, you know, the ICA bylaws are the, you know, the bylaws for the cooperative movement. So let me just say, the equal exchange people came to me at ICA. ICA was this PA place. We had money so we could provide financing. We had business people, the, you know, the Yale School of Management, the MBAs you know, stocked our business development sector, and then we had lawyers, and I was one of the lawyers. I was the lawyer, at least uh, for most of the time. So okay. the Equal Exchange founders came to me to set up this. They brought, they, they added the fair trade dimension to my arsenal, but they wanted to set up a worker cooperative. And so I was their lawyer. I set it up, and then I continued to consult with them. And at one point, they said, look, come on and join us. And at that time, there was probably about six of us at Eagle Exchange. So I became their general counsel. I became their capital coordinator. They said, one of the things we need you to do is help us raise money. And I became the chairperson of the board. So, I mean, yeah, they may want to distance themselves. They're not distancing because they, they bought a table for my induction ceremony um, at the, uh, uh, for the Co-op Hall of Fame, Equal Exchange did. But, yeah, I was very much involved with the founders. I mean, those are, those are my boys and girls. Myrna, Myrna Greenfield was uh, the female member of that group. 
But um, so as part of their capital formation guide, like, so how do we bring in the equity? We just can't build a co-op on debt or on retained earnings, especially in the fair trade arena, you know, because the margins, if any, are just very, very thin. Prior to Equal Exchange, all of the fair trade companies had been nonprofits. And so Equal Exchange was really, really testing, you know, could you, in fact, have a business that reflected your moral, social, um, even your religious values? Did you have to separate your personal values, your ethical values, from your business values? And so that, that was the, the purpose of Equal Exchange. Um, these were community activists. They were not coffee people. They were not business people. They wanted to test the limits of, uh, of, of an alternative model, and an alternative model based on values. So Eagle Exchange went to the marketplace saying, hey, we're a worker-owned cooperative. Two, we only buy product from cooperatives in developing world. Three, we're going to pay them a fair price, a fair trade price. So at the time, I mean, coffee was like 50 cents a pound on the market, but we paid $2.50. We got to we got to take our third break, and this has happened several times. I so much enjoy what you're talking about that I just really forget that we have to break. Okay, we'll be right back after we get the news, the weather, and the traffic. We'll be right back. Your news talk station. Welcome back, everybody. Clark Arrington is our guest today on Everything Co-op, and he has a lot to talk about, a lot of experience in this co-op world. He, like I, though, did not learn about it in formal education. It was just through working. We found out about this cooperative world. And National Co-op Bank has been sponsoring this program for eight years so that maybe you can find out about co-ops and earlier, maybe create your own co-op or go join a co-op or buy from a co-op because what we're going to do, talk about this, this hour, we were talking about equal exchange and fair trade. Fair trade means that you pay the, the farmer for coffee or bananas or cocoa, whatever you buy, they pay, pay them a fair price. And a lot of these farmers who are poor farmers in Africa or Central America, so they paid them a fair price. And how can you do that and make money on it? And so they brought in the, the brains of Clark Arrington to help them figure that out. Clark, because of time, we only have another 10 minutes or so. Tell us about your international experience. How did you get into international? You, you went from Philly to prep school. You, you, somehow you went to, got your law degree, and you ended up at American a Catholic University, and then out in the Epps, and and then Columbus, Mississippi, then Boston. How did you end up internationally? What happened? What, what was that like? Like in a couple minutes. Yeah, yeah. I'll try to be brief, but let me give a shout out to uh, Penn State undergrad and University of Notre Dame grad, a law school. Penn State, and uh, I got my master's in mathematics from Penn State, so we crossed a little bit there. Oh well, right okay. on. Okay. Anyway. So um, I'm living in Providence. My daughter went to Brown. She graduates. My parents were deceased. And um, I was really, 
disgusted and 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 and, and uncomfortable, uh, like I am now, with the uh, political situation in America. This would have been year 2000. I was also I've always been sort of an adjunct professor at um, Southern New Hampshire University. They had a master's degree program in community economic development. So my daughter graduated from from Brown. I was really free. I'm legal change was stable. I've been there 10 years, and I was ready to um, to explore Africa. Uh, I wanted to explore Africa. It was always a fantasy. And so I explored several opportunities, one of which was with, with uh, SNU, Southern New Hampshire, which has set up the same program in Africa and particularly in Tanzania. And that's what I ended up doing at the Open University of Tanzania, um, set up a master's degree program in community economic development. That's what brought me to Africa. It was a beautiful experience. I spent 15 years in Africa. One of the uh, accomplishments, the current president of the United Republic of Tanzania is a graduate of the program that I set up at the Open University of Tanzania. So she has a master's degree in community economic development, meaning she knows a lot about cooperatives and community-based economic development because she learned it <laughs> from my program. <laughs> and I'm okay. Like, and then she appointed one of my dear friends, Elsie uh, Kassan, um, as the Tanzanian ambassador to the United States. And, um, and she also, I mean, her, her background is, uh, is economics, um, studied in the United States, was head of the uh, African World Economic Forum, and she's here. And so I'm really looking forward to doing cooperative investment work between African-Americans and, and Tanzanians in particular. So that's how I ended up in Africa, from which was very interesting. From the um, Open University of Tanzania, uh, I went to the African Development Bank, which was an arm of the United States government that focused exclusively on Africa. And what we did at that time was we invested basically in cooperatives. So I, I had a chance at that time to travel around Africa, you know, invested in cotton cooperative, uh, rice cooperative, uh, paprika cooperative, coffee cooperative. I don't know, David Robinson, son of Jackie Robinson. He's in Tanzania. He's got a, he's part of a coffee cooperative. You know, we invested in with David. David has become a good friend. And so I really got a sense of the, the cooperative sector in Tanzania. And, um, one of the uh, bridges, and I, you know, I know it's a short time, but um, you know, if you're familiar with Miles Davis, he has an album out called uh, uh, Filet de, Filet de Kilimanjaro. And, um, you know, it, and it's you know, Kilimanjaro. And, he, and Miles Davis, back, I guess it would have been in the 60s, invested in the oldest cooperative in Africa, which is the Kilimanjaro Native Cooperative Union which is a coffee group out of uh, northern, um, northern Tanzania. And back in, yeah, in the 60s, Miles Davis invested in it, and then he has this album, you know, called, you know, Palacic Kilimanjaro. And later, at Equal Exchange, we purchased coffee from them. Uh, and then even later, when I'm with the African Development Foundation, we invested in them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just uh, hook up with with one of the oldest um, co-op groups, uh, certainly the oldest one in Africa. It was the first Native Cooperative Union. Uh, that's what it's called, Native Cooperative Union. Because white folk could have cooperatives, 
but natives couldn't. They could just work for them. But KNCU was the first, you know. Anyway, so, yeah, and then I worked for the African Development Bank. I did a consultancy there for two years, mostly in uh, extractive uh, industries, uh, extractive minerals. And I tried to promote a cooperative at the, at the, at the, um, at the, at the citizenship level to say that the, the government should own the mines and the gold and the diamonds and the tanzanite and should create corporations in which all of the citizens of the corporation uh, or of the country are members of the uh, – or owners of the corporation, very much like Alaska, where all the oil in Alaska is distributed – profits are distributed to citizens of Alaska as annual dividends. So there's a guaranteed – well, as long as they're producing oil, citizens of Alaska – um, get an annual dividend check. And I thought the opportunity is so ripe to do that also in Africa. So we set up this thing called the African Legal Facility. We were primarily focused on vulture funds at that time. But um, that effort was to create a more equitable distribution of profits from, from the mining sector. How did that go? Because when I visited Sierra Leone, I was so disappointed because there was so much poverty in Sierra Leone and they had so much natural resources. Uh, and it seemed like the, the the money from the resources, from the minerals, bauxite or whatever else they had, and sun and beaches went to Europeans, not to African citizens. So how did that work? That sounds fascinating. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's, and, that, and that's part of the problem is that the Europeans are on both sides of the table in terms of the the business and financial models. So the European law firms represent the country that's got the extractive uh, uh, minerals, and then they represent the um, the companies that are doing the extracting. So there's not a lot of opportunity for you know being creative and you know being community focused because you got the you know the folks that profit from this model. You know, yeah, the country gets some um, dividends and whatever. Uh, and, and, and then they, you know, basically they bribe a lot of the, the officials. But but the people, yeah, you're right. You can have this massive, uh, you know, income development scenario, you know, where massive amounts of money are being made, but yet the country's in poverty, you know. And that's, uh, that's kind of, what do they call that, the uh, Stockholm Syndrome, you know. And, and, and that's a whole other sort of set of discussions. But why? Why is that? I mean, why can't um, why can't you put the, the the ownership of the the minerals in a company that's owned by the um, by the people, the citizens? We tried to when I was in Tanzania. We tried. There was a lot of divestment going on, and one of the banks that was being divested, I got one of my investor friends, Wilbur Clone, this guy who was <laughs> who, who I practiced law with in Mississippi to back me, and we put together uh, an investment group that included Wilbur, his investor friends, who was very wealthy at the time, Andrew Young, this brother, I forget his name, Lang, John Lang. Ed Lang. And we, only, we, we only have a minute to go, so I, I'm wanting yeah, you to leave people with. What, what lessons do you want people to leave with? And maybe you can go from this story to say, here's what you need to learn. Here's what you need to leave people with. Oh, uh, you know, I just hope you have folk who are listening enjoyed. And if you have questions, uh, 
find a way of getting in touch with me and, uh, you know, don't give up your dreams. Equal Exchange was a dream. ICA was a dream. Seed Commons, where I work now, is a dream. But it's happening. We're doing things. Things are happening. Dreams are being manifested. Don't give up your dreams. Is there a way of reaching you that you'd want to leave people with, either email address? I'm Clark Arrington at hotmail.com, or I'm Clark at seedcommons.org. So um, Clark Arrington at Hotmail. Okay, Clark Arrington at Hotmail. Thank you very much, Clark. Everybody out there, please have a wonderful week and live cooperatively. We'll see you next Thursday.